0: Welcome to episode 206 of Real Life Ghost Stories And to kick things off this week I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers I would like to thank Fauna May Darius Lapelle Louise Finlayson Katrina Clift Jackie Burton Tabaroni Pauline Horniblow And Caroline Robinson Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon I love you and appreciate you every single day And I have a promo for you today and our promo for this week is the Haunted UK podcast. A podcast showcasing and telling the stories of ghosts, poltergeists, UFOs, strange creatures, mysterious disappearances and other paranormal events from around the world. Every episode you'll delve into the history and backstory of what makes these stories stick with us for so many years. So please remember... If you happen to visit any of the places in the episodes, just take a look around and pause for a while. Because the next person who might have an experience could be you. I'm going to play you the promo for Haunted UK podcast right now. And if you enjoy it, please make sure to go and check them out. Subscribe to them, give them a listen, give them a review. All of those things are so helpful to any podcast.
1: I picked up the phone and said hello. At first there was just a crackling static noise. Then a voice, which sounded like part of the static, said, I'm not leaving. Then the line went dead. Chills went all over me, but I was determined to find out if this had a rational explanation. I went back to the other office and waited outside for Darren to arrive with the keys. A few minutes later, we were unlocking the door and inside only to find out that the phone wasn't even plugged into the wall. This is the Haunted UK Podcast, and I'm the show's host, Steve. And that was an extract from Working with the Unknown, a terrifying tale about a listener's experience in her nighttime workplace. One of the many true cases we regale and present to you on the show. So if you enjoy a creepy tale or two, Stories of real life ghost encounters, doppelgangers, time slips, lesser known UK hauntings, then join us every Friday for an episode where we frequently cross the threshold of the unknown.
0: And our film review this week our film review is Evil Dead Rise. Evil Dead Rise was released in 2023. It has 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. In the fifth Evil Dead film, a road-weary Beth pays an overdue visit to her older sister Ellie, who is raising three kids on her own in a cramped L.A. apartment. The Sisters' Reunion is cut short by the discovery of a mysterious book deep in the bowels of Ellie's building, giving rise to flesh-possessing demons and thrusting Beth into a primal battle for survival as she is faced... ...with the most nightmarish version of motherhood imaginable. As always we're going to go likes and dislikes and in my likes column... ...the first thing I've written is... ...I mean when a film starts with a literal scalping and then a decapitation... ...you know you're in for a good time. So let's be really clear here, as you all know... ...I am no fan of gore in a film. However, I appreciate that there are some genres of film like the Evil Dead films where... Gore and kind of the most gory and brutal and gruesome deaths possible are part of the story, okay? So sometimes it is acceptable. Sometimes it's more acceptable than others. I think I just don't like gore for shock value, you know what I mean? But in this film, I kind of get it because it gets to a point of ridiculousness, like the gore is totally over the top, the violence is totally over the top and you expect it from the beginning of the film. The characters in this film are genuinely incredibly likeable. So the mum to her sister, who is the wayward aunt, to the kids, even the littlest one. So the family are a little bit discombobulated. They're kind of an unconventional family. I mean, what kind of family is conventional these days? But really, they are a family who very clearly have their flaws. But that's not really leaned on in this film it's just accepted that the family have their flaws and I kind of liked that because I don't like when a film leans on family dynamics that for a lot of people are probably quite normal or at the very least not abnormal and in this film we meet a mother who is trying to raise her three children and her and the father of the children have just split up and she's a tattoo artist and they live in this sort of dingy little LA flat and the sister is a, well everyone refers to her as a groupie but she is a guitar technician for a band and she travels the world and you know what, I really liked them as a family I really liked their dynamic, I really liked how imperfect they were And I was really rooting for them. Like Watching them band together to face this unimaginable evil is really great. And I was on board with them. All of the action in this movie takes place in this kind of dingy LA apartment building, which feels really dark and claustrophobic. And I do think it really worked because when we think about claustrophobic films, we think of the classic Evil Dead, Cabin in a Woods kind of scenario... And, in this situation, as the story progresses, they get increasingly cut off from the rest of the city. The building ends up feeling really claustrophobic, like it felt like despite the fact the family were in the middle of the city, they really, really were trapped and I think I need to give like a special shout out to the woman who played the mother in this film. She is the person to get possessed by this demon. that's not a spoiler. it's literally in the trailer. And I thought it was a really interesting take to have it as a possessed mother who, when you see her unpossessed, she clearly adores her children. And now, as a possessed woman, she is tormenting her children. And that's a really interesting dynamic. And I thought far more interesting than like a load of, you know, hot 20 somethings out in the woods. I even wrote down a favourite line, which is not something I usually do, but there's a point in the story where. The kids realise something is wrong with their mother but they're not quite sure what is happening yet and she says I wish I could cut you open and climb inside your bodies so we could stay one happy family and in a world of things like cute aggression I kind of got it and little did they know that she sort of meant literally so it kind of goes downhill from there but still I thought it was a really great line and I thought it was nuanced and clever and the relationship dynamic was really interesting and the mother physically her face was incredible and perfect for this creepy smiling demon that she becomes and in terms of dislikes I will say it's hard to dislike this movie but this style of film is just not for me so as I said, the gore and the violence is expected with a film like this and I totally understand that. But it's relentless. It didn't feel like it was like too much or too absurdly gory. But because the film literally opens with gore and keeps up a level of gore and violence the entire way through, I kind of got bored of it. I got to a point where I was like, I don't care if you're getting shredded by a cheese grater. I don't care. I don't care if somebody's stabbing you in the face with a scissors. It doesn't interest me. I'm over it. Let's just butcher people and move on. And I did see one reviewer say that the monotony of the gore kind of made it feel like a marathon. And I'm not going to lie. It really did. As somebody who has never ran a marathon, I can only imagine that running a marathon is exactly the same as watching the amount of gore in Evil Dead Rise. Exactly the same. I think it's also important to mention that the end of the film is absolutely absurd. Like it is ridiculous beyond all reason. However, we're suspending our disbelief with this one. And I kind of thought when I was watching it, yes, this ending is ridiculous, but also where else were they going to go? The ending, the climax of the film needed to be extreme because the level of violence and gore in the rest of the film was really extreme. So it kind of had to keep rising and keep going up and up and getting bigger and bigger and more ridiculous until the climax. I think as well for me, there was very little emotionality in the film. Like, these people, these children are watching their mother do violent, horrific things. There's The sister is watching her sister do violent, horrific things. And there just is a real lack of feeling about it. None of them seem particularly emotional about the fact that everything is gone upside down and inside out in the most violent way imaginable. I think if my mother was suddenly crawling up the walls and onto the ceiling, I'd have a lot more to say about it. And I probably wouldn't be as accepting of what was happening in front of my eyeballs. This is a tough film to give a score to, right? Because fundamentally, it's not my kind of film. It's not my vibe. But it was entertaining and I can see the appeal of it. And also I think the insults that are thrown around in this film are brilliant. The continued unnecessary use of the C word brought me immeasurable amounts of joy. I'm going to give this film a three stars and I'm going to suggest that if you do watch it, watch it with friends because I think it would be even more entertaining with a group of people.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Which brings us to our story this week. Now, our story is not about people being cheese grated into oblivion. However, as you guys know, this year I took a little trip to the West Coast of America A couple of weeks ago we looked at some Seattle ghost stories and today we are taking another pit stop in the wonderful city of Portland. Now as with all of these US ghost stories, these West Coast ghost stories, there will be a YouTube vlog that comes with this story and it will be out in the next couple of days. So if you like kind of nice ambient background vlogs going on while you're going about your day then that is the type of YouTube content that I aim to create. So go and check out the Real Life Ghost Stories YouTube channel and subscribe if that's your vibe and you can check out the accompanying video in the next couple of days. So let's get into it. Portland, Oregon is a truly unique place. It is the home of the weird and the wonderful and it is safe to say that it's quirky, and it's also home to some truly wild tales. Portland became populated by settlers at the end of the 1830s, and in what would perhaps be a precursor to how odd Portland was destined to be, the name of Portland was decided with a mere flip of a coin. According to early accounts which have been subsequently popularised, the city's founders, Lovejoy and Pettigrove, just couldn't decide on what to name their new city. It was either going to be Boston, Oregon, or Portland, Oregon. And in order to figure it out, they flipped a coin. The rest, as they say, is history. Whether you believe this story or not, what is reported to be the actual Portland penny can still be viewed to this day. The city of Portland is also home to what is officially the world's smallest city park, a 24-inch ring of grass and flowers that was transformed from a disused lamppost cavity. In 1946, a local journalist began writing about this tiny patch of grass in a whimsical little newspaper column, stating that it was, quote, the only group of leprechauns to establish a colony west of Ireland. In 1971, the title of smallest city park in the world, was bestowed upon what is now called Mill Ends Park. Historically, Portland's waterside location meant that it was a thriving hub of transportation and trade, and the timber industry was one of the driving forces in the city's trade. The Portland of today has a reputation of being a haven for outsiders and a liberal enclave, But way back when, after the city's inception, it had a reputation of being the most dangerous port town in the world, earning the nickname the Forbidden City of the West. It was a hub of organised crime, underground organisations both figuratively and literally, human trafficking, violence, sex work and drug and alcohol abuse. And as you can imagine, In a place that makes Sin City look tame in comparison, there are bound to be a lot of ghost stories. The story of Nina starts and stops in one little sitting booth of what is now Old Town Pizza. The building wasn't always Old Town Pizza and before adopting its new look and moniker, it was the Old Town's Merchant Hotel. Portland wasn't just a den for criminals and the lower classes, it wasn't just a hub of opium dens and crime, of underground tunnels and sex workers who referred to themselves as seamstresses. No. Wealthy upper class people frequented the streets of Portland too, and hotels were important for catering for the wealthy. Nina was not a lucky woman. Fortune had not shone down upon her and she tried to make it alone in this city while supporting her 12-year-old daughter. When vice is around every corner and under every floor, it was almost impossible to eke out a living without turning to the sex trade. There were, of course, women in the city who chose the lucrative sex trade, but Nina was not one of those women. She was pressured into it, the beady eyes of the city seeing a woman who was desperate to provide for her daughter and who would do so by any means. The thing with the sex trade in these early days of the city was that once you were in it, it was impossible to get back out. So when you were an unwilling participant, life sometimes became unbearable for nina the light of salvation came from two mystery men they were christian missionaries they told her and they would remove her and her child from this life of vice and slavery on one simple condition she just needed to give them information nina being a sex worker was very aware of the less lawful pursuits in the town of portland she could slip in and out of dens and tunnels virtually unseen because no one on the streets took any notice of the seamstresses that frequented the beds of men. She knew information that she shouldn't have known. Men talked freely in front of her as though she wasn't even there. Some men even confided in her, seeing her as a way to confess to a neutral entity. Maybe these men really were missionaries and maybe they could save her and her daughter from this life. But if they really were men of God, why then did they allow her to continue working as a seamstress to gather information for them? Why not get her out first? Get her and her daughter to safety and then get the information they needed. Perhaps they posed as missionaries in order to get the information they needed on rival gangs and rival criminals. Either way. The mere possibility, the mere sliver of hope that they offered Nina was enough for her to do whatever they wanted. But Nina was not built for a life of crime, and to the supposed missionaries and the criminals she was collecting information about, Nina was completely and utterly disposable. Barely anyone would even notice she was gone, and the police wouldn't care about the death of a sex worker. Nina was thrown from the third storey of the old town's merchant hotel down an elevator shaft and lay in a crumpled heap at the bottom. She was dead. But 100 years later, Nina has never left. She is still there, still lingering in Old Town Pizza. Jeff Dwyer is an author on The Paranormal and dedicated his time to travelling the city to discover its most haunted locations. He sat in the little sitting booth, writing notes and musing over the stories he had discovered on his travels. And then, he smelt it. The soft floral notes of a woman's perfume. He smelled it as strongly as if she had sat down next to him in the booth and then he felt the air flow as this unseen woman stood up and moved away between the tables. He heard the rustle of her skirts and heard her voice, the words indecipherable as though they had been lost in time. The last thing he knew of her was the smell of perfume lingering in the air and these occurrences are reported regularly both in Old Town Pizza and the surrounding buildings, as though this woman, or maybe more than one woman, are moving around the buildings, their pathways echoing through time. And there have been times where what is believed to be the ghost of Nina has made herself known in a more pronounced way. During a tour of the Old Town Pizza and the tunnels beneath, A tour guide was using a spirit box in order to demonstrate how the machine worked and also provide the alluring possibility of communicating directly with the spirits that lurk beneath the buildings. It took everything in his power not to drop the spirit box when the distinctive and clear voice of a woman came through, pleading and desperate. Help me. And in the sitting booth, Where her perfume is smelled and her skirts rustle, there is a brick that bears her name, Nina, carved into it in a time long before living memory. Beneath Old Town Pizza there are tunnels and aside from just being generally spooky, these tunnels have functional uses. The tunnels have chutes that lead up to the street, which means that deliveries can be sent down into the tunnels without the risk of a delivery person carrying items down steep and rickety steps or stairs. It's a standard procedure, and is one that is fulfilled in all manner of businesses all over the world. The delivery person delivers their goods, fills out some forms, and they go on their way. But... In Old Town Pizza, things are often not as straightforward as this. One day, a vendor came up the stairs to the restaurant in a state of panic. He was visibly shaking and terrified. He could barely get his words out, but when he eventually managed to speak, he said to the manager, That girl, that girl who lives upstairs, does she hang out in the basement? The manager was confused, and the delivery driver went on to explain... He had been standing in the basement having made his delivery when he felt something behind him, a rush of air like someone had run past him. And he turned to see the figure of a woman in large skirts rushing up the stairs that led to the restaurant. She vanished into thin air in front of the door. He did not return to the Old Town Pizza delivery route after this. The tunnels beneath the Old Town Pizza are interesting as they are the remnants of what has become known as the Shanghai Tunnels. Now, before we get into the depths of the dark and murky Shanghai Tunnels, there are some things that we need to address. The stories of the Shanghai Tunnels are legendary in the Pacific Northwest, but a lot of the stories are romanticised or wildly exaggerated, and as a result the myth and the legends of the Shanghai Tunnels are often conflated with the actual historic events. It's difficult to decipher what is real and what is just good storytelling. To give you an example of what I mean, in the 1930s, a former logger and writer kept a column of his experiences and stories from around Oregon. His name was Stuart Holbrook and he recounted a story that took place in the Shanghai Tunnels. A group of men who had banded together over their insatiable love of alcohol, had made their way into the tunnels under the dead of night. Their quest was simple. They wanted to get to some tunnels that wound beneath a saloon and siphon off as much alcohol as they could from the barrels that were stored there. Simple. They were discovered in the tunnels under the saloon, all seemingly in a drunken stupor and were quickly sold to the ship's captain, who was moored in the harbour. They were carried aboard the ship, with the view that they would wake up, likely very hungover, at sea, and realise that they were now in the servitude of the captain. Except they didn't wake up, because what the men found was actually a barrel of embalming fluid, which they gleefully slurped down. They were not asleep in a drunken stupor. They were dead. Holbrook's story is a famous tale of the Shanghai Tunnels and though the story is detailed, he gives the name of the ship and the mortuary and claims multiple men died. There is no evidence that any of these ships, buildings or men ever existed and as much of our extreme tales of the Shanghai Tunnels come from the Oregonian column of Stuart Holbrook, it could be suggested that he was maybe a bit liberal with the truth. And was perhaps more of a story spinner than a journalist. Portland historian Barney Blalock explains why the Shanghai Tunnels got their somewhat confusing name. He says that they were built by the Chinese back in the days when Chinatown was the centre of gang activity related to the different tongs. The gambling dens, brothels and opium parlours of Chinatown were connected to separate labyrinths with steel doors, trap doors leading to secret stairways and tunnels for escape into far alleyways. These were security measures designed for dealing with both rival tongs and police raids. Because the tunnels were colloquially referred to as the Shanghai Tunnels, the act of using the tunnels to kidnap and enslave people to work on ships became known as shanghaiing. But the correct term for it is crimping and the reality of crimping was of course harsh, but it was not as gory and gruesome as many of today's tales would suggest. Hotels, inns and boarding houses would often work closely with ships' captains. They would take in men and massively overcharge them for their board and lodgings, the men would inevitably not be able to pay the money, and would be forced to board ships to work until their debt was paid off, and this practice was widely known and accepted. In fact, in the beginnings of the city of Portland, vagrancy was illegal, so often people had no other choice. In one historical account, four men who had been forced to sign on to a ship disembarked in Astoria in Oregon and tried to quit their service. The captain of the ship clapped them in irons and the men took their quest for freedom all the way to the US Supreme Court, where they lost and were forced back onto the ship. It wasn't until the Siemens Act of 1915 that sailors who had been crimped were allowed to depart their forced servitude. But crimping continued until the 1940s. So despite the fact that some of the stories of the Shanghai tunnels are embellished, there is still a very dark history of crimping in Portland and we also can't dismiss the reality that we will never fully know the extent of what those tunnels were used for. As we said in the story of Nina, There are certain deaths or disappearances that just weren't worth trying to solve. Of course, the ghosts of Portland are not just relegated to beneath the ground, no. There are numerous buildings around the city that are said to be haunted. One such building is the White Eagle Saloon. The White Eagle Saloon was established in 1905 and continues to serve drinks to musicians and travellers on the east side to this day. The White Eagle Saloon was opened by two Polish immigrants, William Hirschko and Barney Soboleski, who wanted to create a place where other Polish immigrants could meet and feel at home. Originally it was known as the B. Sobolewski and Company Saloon, but was later renamed the White Eagle after the White Eagle that adorned the Polish flag. Originally the saloon was competing with 11 other saloons in the area, and though it was popular among sailors and industry workers, they needed to create an advertising campaign that put them ahead of their competitors. The White Eagle Saloon began handing out free lunches to customers and not only was this successful in drawing in more customers, but it also deeply benefited the city's poorer communities. That was until the city banned the practice in 1913. But the White Eagle remained popular and drew in the immigrant population of the city and the city council began to take notice. The council warned that places like the White Eagle attracted unsavoury characters and criminality and rumours began to spread. It is unclear whether these rumours were because of the voiced concerns of the council or whether local competitors wanted to put the White Eagle out of business or because maybe the rumours were true. Whatever the case may be, word spread that the saloon was delving into the darker sides of pleasure. The White Eagle was rumoured to be using gambling and sex work to keep the doors open and keep the punters flooding in. Barney Sobolewski sold his share in the business and this only confirmed the rumours in some people's minds. Sobolewski had clearly left because he did not agree with the illicit actions taking place in his beloved saloon. William Hrischko and his brother Joseph took over the running of the saloon in 1914 and one of the first things they did was build an extension out the back and add an upstairs and in more people's minds, this solidified the rumours even further. Why else would you extend the saloon if not to allow for gambling and sex work? Publicly, the Hrishko brothers denied having any part in underground activities but Prohibition was reinstated in 1915 and they needed to rethink their business plan. Allegedly, the brothers installed a large vault door in the basement, which meant that they could transport alcohol from the Shanghai tunnels to their customers. When Prohibition ended, the White Eagle became a hub for sailors, who would deliver shipments of alcohol to the saloon, have a few drinks, and retire upstairs to a bedroom to be entertained by the local seamstresses or spend the night playing poker in the back rooms, or both if they were feeling particularly indulgent. There were also rumours of men being crimped in the White Eagle. Of course, the more elaborate stories claim that men were drugged and then brought to the tunnels and out the ships. However, a more likely scenario is that the men ran up debts they could not pay back and subsequently were forced to work on the ships. Just before World War II, the building was managed by the next generation of Hrishko's and in the 1960s it became a hangout spot for people with poor reputations and it earned the nickname the Bucket of Blood because of the sheer amount of brawls that happened here. And eventually, the Hrishko's sold it to Tony Ferrone, who transformed it into a music venue and it was then sold in the 70s to Charles Hughes who wanted to turn its reputation around and in 1998, it was purchased by the McMenemans brothers. But what of the ghosts? Well, according to PuzzleboxHorror.com, it is natural for a destination of this notoriety to be believed to be haunted. The White Eagle Saloon was a notable location for dozens over the decades, and the idea that spirits of the dead are still attached to the building is not a unique idea. There are a couple of prominent ghosts known to haunt the grounds, with other ghosts poking fun at current hotel guests. Recountings of the tales vary in dates, names and other details. With something as intangible as ghosts, these differences are bound to appear. It has been reported that a sex worker named Rose met an untimely fate within the walls of the saloon, The general tale is that Rose was a favoured and frequent sex worker around the area who was often at the White Eagle. Sadly, a customer happened to fall in love with her and schemed up a plan for the two of them to run away together. Hoping to convince her to run away with him, he met up with Rose one night pleading with her to leave her life of sex work. Rose refused his advances and chose to remain. In desperation and anger, Whether she was pushed down the stairs or stabbed to death in her room, the man then killed Rose. If he couldn't have her, no one could. Guests at the hotel reported having seen an apparition of a beautiful woman, while some experienced the feeling of being touched while in their beds. While the spirits of multiple sex workers may be tied to the saloon, guests have been reported to experience a run-in with some sort of female energy. Local staff report that most of the activity is rumoured to come out of room number two in the hotel where she allegedly frequently stayed. Another prominent ghost is a man rumoured to be named Sam Warwick. The tale surrounding Sam is that he was born on the second floor. It is believed that his mother was a sex worker. Orphaned at birth, Sam grew up in the White Eagle trading his services for room and board. It is reported that he was a bartender amongst other jobs at the White Eagle. The saloon would be his final resting place as he never moved away and eventually passed away in his room. Some of his possessions are said to be still in the guest rooms appearing to have been moved on their own. It is told that Sam is one of the faces you can see in the old photographs hung up on the walls of the White Eagle, keeping a dutiful eye on his forever home. A quick YouTube search has several paranormal investigators who have stayed at the hotel with various measurement tools. Their reports vary and some even report that Room 3 has more paranormal activity than Room 2. If you get the chance to walk the halls, you will see why this hotel maintains such a vibrant, haunted past. It is truly spooky in the hotel, although it does maintain a warm vibe regardless of the low-lighting, creaky stairs and stories of hauntings. Perhaps it is the spirits of Barney Soboleski and William Rishko that roam the halls, as their spirits are no doubt tied to the White Eagle Saloon. Regardless of the truth, Which many may never truly know, these tales that come from the White Eagle Saloon is an honour that represents the importance of this building in Portland. The White Eagle Saloon has seen over a century of happenings occur within its brick walls, fluctuating between a safe haven for immigrants and a final meeting place for some souls. Before we get into dissecting these stories a little bit, uh, some eagle-eared among you may have detected that my voice is not in the best shape at the moment, so this is slightly shorter than usual because it just it just hurts a lot to talk and my voice isn't holding out very well. Um, I've just been a bit unwell. So this episode is going to be slightly shorter so that I can kind of manage the recording of it. But Portland is indeed a weird and wonderful place and when I was there, I was completely enamoured by lots of elements of it. And the main spooky thing that I wanted to see while I was in Portland was the Shanghai Tunnels. And I went to the Old Town Pizza restaurant and they do a haunted tour of the Shanghai tunnels that begins in Old Town Pizza. And then you go into the tunnels, you have a tour guide that tells you stories and you get some beer tasting. And as somebody who doesn't drink beer, uh, I I can't vouch for how good the beer tasting was, but the people in my group seem to really enjoy it. So I think it's pretty good. I will say that when I first looked up this tour the reviews were absolutely horrendous like a lot of the reviews were like oh this tour is really bad don't do it etc etc however a new group has taken over the running of these tours and I promise you it is really good ignore the reviews it's a new management team and the tour was genuinely really engaging really interesting and really fun there will be snippets of the tour on the YouTube vlog that I release because they very kindly allowed me to film it. I think it was $44. And for that $44, you get an hour, an hour's tour with lots of stories involved and you get your beer tasting as well. Um, And just to be clear, this is not an ad or I'm not in any way affiliated with this tour company, but I just said I'd let you know because the reviews are bad, but they are not accurate. And the story of Nina in Old Town Pizza is probably the most famous kind of Portland ghost story. And here's my thinking about it. From what I can gather, a lot of this story is conjecture, assumptions, kind of guesses, stabs in the dark. And I wondered if the story started with this name Nina being carved into a brick and people wondering why it was carved in and where the story came from. However, what I will say is also that when you've got towns where sex work is rife, it is likely that lots of women met an untimely end and that Nina's story is probably reflective of the true experiences of lots of women. Her story itself may not be 100% historically accurate, but I think the ingredients in that story are probably very accurate to a lot of women who worked in the sex trade back in them days. And that's probably part of the reason why those stories retain their popularity because I think people listen to them and they're very human stories and you imagine, oh my word, like these women went through such awful things in the sex trade back in those days and women were murdered and they weren't seen as important they weren't their deaths weren't investigated because the police were just like well that's another sex worker gone and we don't need to worry about that because who really cares I think that's probably why these stories survive and in a way I feel like isn't it such a good thing even if the story isn't necessarily true I think it's a really amazing thing that we're keeping the spirit and the essence and the lives of these women alive by telling stories like the story of Nina. And I was thinking about including the kind of really juicy, gruesome stories of the Shanghai tunnels, uh, stories of like trapdoors in pubs, where like almost in a Sweeney Todd fashion, the, the pub landlord would pull a lever and these unsuspecting men would fall into the tunnels and be drugged and taken to ships, etc. Now it's unlikely that those things happened, but the stories are incredibly entertaining. And, as I said in the story, the reality is is that things like things like Shanghaiing, crimping, like they, they happened, and even though they might not be these horrible, gruesome stories, the act of crimping in itself is pretty horrendous, and I'm sure there were men who didn't survive these journeys at sea because the conditions would have been absolutely awful, and there probably are a lot of spirits who are unquiet and unhappy with how they were treated in life. And I actually didn't go to the White Eagle while I was in Portland which I'm a bit annoyed about because I just didn't have time. I wasn't there for long enough and I would love to go back and visit it because it seems to just have a really interesting story. And if you've got a saloon that is having these rumours of sex work and gambling, I, I don't know if if there was probably any saloon in Portland at the time that weren't engaging in elements of sex work and gambling because that's that's how people made their money. And I wonder if these stories about the White Eagle have kind of passed on from generation to generation because in the 1960s, it was such a place of violence where there was all these frequent brawls. Like, it became known as the Bucket of Blood. And I wonder if, like... In the 1960s, there was all these brawls happening. People were going, sure, look, hasn't it always been like this since the time it opened? It was engaging in all sorts of illegal activities. And I wonder how much of it as well is to do with like an anti-immigration sentiment, like because it was owned by Polish people and frequented by Polish people. Is it possible that rumours grew up because people harboured resentments and prejudices towards the Polish people who were immigrating? It's hard to know. And similar to the stories about Seattle, there are so many stories out there about Portland and about the weird and wonderful world that is Portland. So it's one of those places that I think I'm going to have to come back to in stories for some other time. And as always, with stories like this, the links to wherever I got my information are all in the description of this episode. And I am going to wrap it up kind of pretty, pretty lively today because... As I said, my voice is not holding out very well and it is not particularly nice to listen to, I would imagine. And just to remind you, if you're interested in watching my vlog of my time in Portland and my time in the Shanghai tunnels, and I also went to visit a theatre that came up in a listener story a couple of months ago. So if you want to go and see all of that then subscribe to the YouTube channel that's Real Life Ghost Stories. If you just type in Real Life Ghost Stories, you'll find the channel really easily on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website Real Life And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon that is patreon.com forward slash Real Life Ghost Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini.